Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. We're glad you're here. I'm with my uh, good friend, Alex Youngblood. How are you doing, Alex? Good, man. How are you? Awesome. Really good. I just got back from a camping trip last or this last weekend. We rented an RV, went down to the Ozarks area near Branson, a place called Table Rock. It's beautiful. I love camping in the fall. You're a camping guy, are you? Well, are you? Do You, you have four kids. <laughs> no. I, I hate camping. I'd rather go to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> we had a blast. I, I have three kids and one on the way, so I don't have four kids yet, but you know, very close, February. Yeah, yeah. Well, good for you, man. That's awesome. And they're all they will all be under the age of five. <laughs> I you know, I, my wife found out there's an actual name for that. There's you know, it's called bunching. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. I said, Wow, that sounds like a good reality T V bunching. <laughs> now we don't fall we don't fall under the category of families with like, you know, twenty children, but you know, right. it, it is tough when they're you got all under the age of five like that. But that's okay. I mean the, we we I love having kids and, and especially if you can go camping with a bunch of kids and we brought bikes and scooters, soccer balls, baseballs and they just had a blast. They played and if you get an R V it's not that bad. But you know, you know what our motto is now, or my wife's motto is for no more." <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, are you working on any deals right now, Alex? Uh, always, always working on deals. Um, yeah. I we I think I wholesaled uh, one or two last week, and getting wrapped up on some rehabs, finishing those, and getting ready to start a big new construction project it's you know been taking a while to get you know, the land subdivided and all that stuff, but that's just part of the game. I picked up a uh, cheap rental uh, property that I'm, or property that I could wholesale. You know, I could wholesale and make probably twenty five thousand. But I think we're going to keep this one, yeah. And I'll own it then free and clear, and be able to get you know thousand dollars a month. And if you're going to be in rental game, the deal is to um, buy them cash, not buy things with mortgages on them and, and such. I think because oh, yeah. that can get trouble. So. I'm I'm picking up some cheap ones here and there that I can hold. And where are you buying those at? Those rental properties? You mean from or no, what? What, what part of the country? City? Yeah. Oh, right in my area, local, very local to me. Okay. And then what? So you're buying? They're renting for what? And how much are you buying them for on average? Well, this one I bought for twenty five grand, and I'll probably be able to rent it for a thousand. And I bought one last year for ten thousand that I can rent for a thousand. So it's <laughs> a good number. Excellent. But and you're putting some money into these things to fix them up, right? Yeah. The last the last one that I bought for ten thousand had a tenant inside it, and we tried to make it work, but it just didn't work. So. Uh, when I got her out, I had to put about fifteen thousand into it, and now you know it'll be ready to get somebody else into it. Section eight, the one I'm buying for twenty five thousand, I'm probably gonna actually is not terrible. It's a nice brick ranch. I can probably put about five to ten thousand into it and be up and running. Nice. Those yeah. sound like numbers we're getting here in St. Louis. I'm surprised that you can get them. But here's the interesting thing is the one the one for 25,000 is actually assessed for 148,000 or something like that. Wow. Yeah. And the one 
that I've got for the the other one I have, you know, I bought for ten thousand is probably assessed for like eighty five. That might be more along your numbers, I would I would say. Okay. Yeah, we're we're a lot cheaper. Our average median home price is a lot cheaper here in St. Louis. And but yeah, we're getting pretty consistent fifteen to twenty percent net cash on cash returns with our properties. Here. Nice. And that includes property management, vacancies, repairs, maintenance, all that good stuff. But we, yeah, we, you know, it was crazy. A couple months ago, I was wholesaling about eight to five homes on average a month. And things really slowed down the last couple months. Last month, things have really slowed down. And I kind of scratched my head. We're not, we, we did slow down our marketing a little bit, but not that much. So I'm kind of hmm. trying to. I'm just so busy with some other projects. Some of you guys may have heard about um, this leads in an hour, a new course I came out with about marketing. It's just a little $97 course on getting seller leads for free on the internet. And uh, that's been going really well, but that just has taken up a ton of my time. You'd be shocked, I think, knowing the amount of time it goes into creating a little $97 it is a lot. It really is a lot. And then, <laughs> and then the whole process of creating the funnel and the advertising and the marketing and, and the sales letter and all that stuff. Well, and then yeah. the, the customer service issues that come up. Um, I get to talk to a lot of people who want to create information products, and uh, they think it's easy. And they it's think the back end there that uh, takes a lot of time mm-hmm. as well. You, it's. I, I just. I, I'll tell you this. It's easier to make money flipping deals than it is teaching people <laughs> to flip deals. You know, it, because how many $97 courses do you need to sell in order to make like $25,000? Well, quite a few. <laughs> quite a few, exactly. And then how many other? How many of those people do you have to help and assist along the way for $97, you know, and when mm-hmm. you sell it one deal, twenty five grand, it's done, you know? Well, and there's, there's more liability related in the... Uh, information business as well probably liability and that's kind of, kind of what, what we're talking bit. about today what are you but talking about first of all guys go to realestateinvestingmastery.com to get our fast cash survival kit and it's free we we basically teach you what we do in our business and how we flip deals whether they have equity or not and realestateinvestingmastery.com but today's guest is Clint Coons from Anderson Business Advisors and Clint is an asset protection specialist, and that's something that we've never talked about on our show before. So I thought it'd be a good idea to get him on and talk about, first of all, what are assets and why should we even have to protect them? <laughs> and uh, hopefully we can get some good advice and tips from Clint. So I think we should just get started. Clint, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the call today. Thanks for your patience and listening to our banter mindless banter back and forth <laughs> <laughs> so um you're in you're based in washington is that right that's correct i'm based in washington uh we have a, a we actually have two offices one here in washington state and one in nevada in las vegas okay well why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do tell us about your company and and tell us maybe give us a, a brief introduction of you know what is an asset and why is it per- important to protect it Sure. Our company is devoted to primarily working with real estate investors. And most of the principals involved in the company have a real estate background. That is, either we grew up in real estate or we're real estate investors ourselves. Uh, Most of us own property in multiple states. 
And what I found, the, re the way I got into this is that uh, when I was in child, my dad wanted two kids. He wanted indentured servants is what he was really desiring. He got them, two boys. And yeah. My dad will sit back and say, oh, look how many properties I have. And I think, well, that's because you had two sons that you could bring out there every weekend and work on those houses mm. and, and, and rehab them for you. So I saw, you know, that aspect of the building up equity in real estate as I was growing up, and it's paid off extremely well for my parents. But I also saw the legal component to it, the problems of not having proper structuring or, or tax, tax compliance in place, as my father suffered through certain lawsuits stemming from his tenants or paying too much in taxes because he wasn't receiving good tax advice. And what I particularly noticed is that my dad had a CPA, and he had an attorney. In fact, my father's attorney was his father, who was a, a well-known attorney in the, in the city of Bremerton, where I grew up. But he just didn't get asset protection. He never once sat down with my dad and said, hey, this is what you should do from an asset protection point of view to protect your real estate from these tenants and from potential creditors. And a CPA, for his part in all of this, never sat down with my father and said, you know, what is it that you're doing? What can we do better? I, I would... Probably, if I were to go back and look at my father's tax returns, the only thing that differed on a year-by-year -year basis was probably just the number. That is the year, and everything okay. else would probably read the same. So, you know, that happens a lot, and people struggle, especially real estate investors, finding an attorney, finding a CPA that are on the same page to begin with and understand the challenges that they're facing. And more to the point, understand real estate investors. And so when we put together the firm, I mean, because we brought this background in, we saw the problems that real estate investors face, and we decided to work specifically with them. And so for the past 15 years, um, we worked with real estate investors throughout the country. I mean, our, our firm is unique in that we bring workshops to people in different areas of the country. I just flew in on Sunday night from Orlando. I was down there for three days working with real estate investors at, at a class talking about these particular issues. We spent a whole day just on taxes, things that they need to be aware of, especially with the recent changes with Obamacare, how that's going to affect their real estate investing going forwards, and also from an asset protection point of view. And so we've built up a great practice doing it, and it's served our clients well, bringing together both sides. Because between the two offices, we probably have about 40 employees between, Seattle, between Tacoma and Las Vegas. And so you have CPAs, you have attorneys, and then when you, when you go to them or you come to us, what we are is we're all on the same page. So if you're, uh -huh. a, say, a wholesaler, I mean, you, you have some specific challenges there as a wholesaler. How do you avoid dealer status? You don't want to become a dealer in real estate because it could impact your other business dealings, not to mention the liability for wholesalers has gone up. I remember... You know, back in 2003 and four, when the market was just screaming, I had a lot of I have a lot of clients in California, and many of them were generating six, seven figure incomes just from wholesaling properties, and that worked great until the wheels fell off this thing, and yeah. then all of a sudden the way they were running their business no longer worked for them because they weren't following proper procedures. And the people that they were dealing with all of a sudden felt like they got a raw deal. They turned around, they hired an attorney, and they came back and started suing my clients. Now, granted, my clients should have been a little tighter in their contracting with these individuals. But when the market was going up, everybody's happy. When the market turned on them, the people who were buying these properties decided to come back and start suing my clients. And the things you've you realize if you've been involved in the lawsuit, the other side will typically lie or stretch the truth if it's to their best interest. And right. many times they're coached by attorneys, which is unfortunate. I don't have a strong 
belief in the legal system from from that point of view. I think most attorneys, unfortunately, they, I mean, let me put it this way. What's the difference between lawyer and liar? Many times it's just pronunciation, and that's the way I feel. (laughs) (laughs) Having been involved in lawsuits where you just want to pull your hair out and you ask the judge, shouldn't this guy be sanctioned? We've proved that he's a liar and his attorney's a liar, and the court won't do anything about it. They just allow this to perpetuate. So, you know, we do a really good job at ensuring that our clients' assets remain protected. Well, you've definitely piqued my interest whenever you start talking about liability for wholesalers, um, because that's a lot of what we do as investors, and it's a lot of what you know we teach people to do. And our podcast, we interview a lot of wholesalers on there. I've I was told when I first got started, if you have not been sued yet, you've not been in the business long enough. Is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. They say the average individual will be involved in five lawsuits over their lifetime. And the busier you are, or the more things you're into, the more likelihood is you're going to hit those five lawsuits much quicker than other individuals. And it's not just real estate. It's not just because it's real estate, but anytime you're an entrepreneur or any kind of business venture, and you start having success, you start making money, you can unfortunately become the target of of, uh, litigation. Is that right? Correct. I mean, it's like you said, if you have success and other people do not, they become jealous and they want to take from you what you've earned through your hard efforts because they're looking for the easy way out. I mean, our society, it seems like now, is built upon the lottery mentality. Why work for it when you can go down and buy a $1 lottery ticket and the government will just give it to you? And people who are successful, they become targets for that. So let's assume that you're out there, you're dealing with somebody, and you're wholesaling a property. They have an expectation that they're going to be able to take that property and flip it and make some money out of it or turn it into a rental, and they're going to get a certain return. If that doesn't materialize, then all of a sudden they're looking around. They're not going to look at themselves and say, well, maybe I didn't do something right in my own due diligence or my own rehab of the property or marketing it. Who can I blame? Well, nobody likes to blame themselves. And so they're going to go to an attorney and they'll say, well, who are you dealing with? You're dealing with Joe? Well, tell me, how did he set up this agreement with you? Did he tell you to go seek legal counsel before you signed this? Hmm, interesting. Let's go and sue Joe. Yeah. And so they bring you into court into a court and then they're just going to assassinate your character and you got to remember look who's sitting on the jury in most of these cases how many of those people are actually real estate investors probably most of them are tenants because they have the time maybe they don't half of them don't even work i mean who has time to sit on a jury for three or four days in the middle of the work week not many people who are employed and so now you're trying to argue to them to get them to understand who you are as a person and, and your business and it's flying right over their head well, many times, too, the lawsuits that I've been involved with, they never get to court just because it's it's not worth the hassle, and so usually we just settle. And that can cost money. I mean, I can't tell you, I don't want to go into too many details, but there's been a couple suits that I've been involved with that I didn't do anything wrong. I was just one part of the whole process, the whole deal. And because I had a little bit of involvement I was named. I mean, they named everybody that was involved with these deals, from the property manager to the realtor to the uh, the actual owner of the house. I just did a little bit of marketing, but I was still named in the lawsuit, and I had to spend a couple grand just for on attorney's fees to to defend myself. And so that can put a lot of fear into people, and, and people that are maybe beginning in real estate hear what we're just now talking about and think... Well, I don't want to get involved with that, so I'm not even going to 
try to learn real estate investing. So we've talked a bit, you know, about the risk. What what about when somebody asks you like, well, why would I want to get involved in in a business where I could potentially get sued? What would you say to them? With risk comes reward is what I would tell them. But you can mitigate your risk if you structure it properly. The way this country is set up, if you want to go into business, no problem. You can go out there and you can start conducting business right away. You don't have to file for a corporation or an LLC. We make it extremely easy for you from both a, a business standpoint, a legal standpoint at the state side and the federal side from a tax standpoint. Just hang out your shingle, get a business license. Now you're a real estate investor. But with that simplicity, comes tremendous amount of risk. We're not going to give you any tax protection from the federal government. You're not going to receive any liability protection from your state if you take that approach. And the problem for most people, what they don't realize, especially when they're first getting started, is that we have something called a statute of limitations. So let's assume you're engaging in some wholesale deals. You know, the average statute of limitations for a contract is six years. Mm-hmm. So you could enter into three or four deals and then you finally decide, you know what, I need to seek counsel and get a business set up. And so maybe your CPA or your attorney, hopefully when you talk to them, they don't tell you just buy insurance and that's all you need because that's not going to cover you. So you decide to set up a business entity a year later after you've done five or six deals. Well, with those five or six deals that you did in your name are not going, your business entity will not protect you from that. Because they were done in your name, you always remain personally liable on those deals until the statute of limitations period runs. So we see this on occasion in my practice where I've dealt with people, they have a business entity set up, but they're being sued for something they did when it was in their own name and they didn't have that entity there. And so that's why I would counsel people, if you're gonna go out in the business world and you wanna deal with people, best thing to do is protect yourself and get uh, some type of entity, either an LLC or corporation set up prior to contracting with someone. So you do have a liability shield should this thing go south. Okay. So why don't you give us some tips then, Clint, on let's, let's focus this towards wholesalers, people who want to wholesale properties. Explain a little bit more detail. Why we would, why would there be any kind of liability involved in a wholesale deal? I mean, when we when I wholesale a property, I will fully disclose everything I know about the property. I will try to get, if I can, a seller's disclosure statement. But a lot of times, the seller's disclosure statements that we get, everything is just checked off, don't know, don't know, don't know. And so I will do, I have an LLC and I'll wholesale these deals in my LLC's name. And we also do an inspection period, you know, where the properties that we're wholesaling I'll get a professional inspection done and I'll send that report to my cash buyer so they can review it. So why why am how could I be liable for something like that when I fully disclose everything I know about the property? Is that is that a good question? Is that a fair question to ask? Sure, it's a fair question. It's simple. You know what's the difference between today and thirty years ago when it comes to lawsuits? Do you have any idea? Uh, no. Okay. Well, besides there's more of them. Okay. (laughs) 30 years ago, you actually had to do something wrong in order to be sued. Today, you don't. And that's a sad truth. So when you tell me, well, Clint, I've done all my disclosures. I've set everything up. I mean, what else could I do? Well, an attorney will find something else. They'll say, you should have done more when you sold this property to this unsuspecting individual who didn't know. I mean, here's the difference. 
you are held to a higher standard. And the reason you're going to be held to a higher standard is because you're a real estate professional. This is what you do for a living. And then they're going to look at the person you've sold the property to or wholesaled the property to, and they're going to tell you, this person is naive. They don't understand real estate. So they were relying upon your expertise to walk them through the process to make sure this was a good deal. And they're going to come back most likely and say, I was working with Joe and Joe told me that if I bought this property from him, I could turn around and sell it and make $50,000 within 30 to 60 days. Mm -hmm. And you probably, I mean, you never told anybody that. It's not in any paperwork that they're going to get that. But the point is, they will tell somebody that. They'll tell their attorney that, and then they'll sue you, and then you're having to defend yourself against something that never even happened. That's where the this liability rests. This goes back to making sure you've got a good re repeat buyers list. <laughs> you know, people that you've worked with in the past, and you're not necessarily working with newbie investors or people that you may be picking off Craigslist or things like that. If you've got, you know, that that handful of investors that continues to buy from you that are in the business that are doing the business on a professional basis, I think that really limits your liability there a little bit, uh, well, quite a bit more. And then also, if you're selling your property, you know, let's say you bought something and then closed on it and listed on them MLS and sold it that way, I think that would negate that a decent amount as long as you know all your your, your realtor because then your realtor is kind of in the middle of it there then well i wanted to, i wanted to class. ask you about that clint tying to that and, and then i want you to if you can go into some tips on what we can do to protect ourselves as wholesalers but does does having a realtor's license help in any kind of protection when you're wholesaling deals or using a realtor to market the homes for you well, I think a realtor, I mean, if you're using a realtor to help, absolutely, that's going to be another layer there. They come with insurance. So if somebody decided to sue, they're going to go after the realtor and their insurance. From your standpoint, should you get a realtor's license? Well, that cuts both ways. It goes back to disclosures again, where you as an individual, or what do you have to do as an individual to ensure that the party with whom you're dealing has received adequate disclosures about your professional status? So from a realtor standpoint, I think it can cut against you if you don't dot all the I's and cross the T's because you're held to this realtor standard now, not the real estate professional standard or somebody who's in the business. Um, it can also cut against you, I think, in the from the standpoint that let's assume that somebody was suing you and the individual tells their attorney that they thought you were a realtor, that you held yourself out to be one. Or they may say the activity you're engaging in is an activity that requires a license. Now, hmm. what? this is the problem with the legal system. When you go into court, the judge that you have to argue your case in front of is not up on these issues. They typically do serve on this revolving bench where they'll move from a criminal docket to a civil docket. And on, and on the civil docket, they hear a wide range of cases. And so you bring in this case with a wholesaler and he's trying to determine whether or not a wholesaler needs to be a licensed real estate agent. He's going to look at his own personal experiences and think to himself, well, let me see. I dealt with somebody who was selling a property. Typically, that's a real estate agent. I've never dealt with a single individual before who was engaged in this type of behavior unless they were licensed. So yeah, you should be licensed. Oh, you're not? Well, then they can rescind the contract and you should be held liable. Well, and they could even... Damage. They could even say, "Oh, you made fifteen grand on that flip. That sounds like that's too much. That doesn't oh, sound absolutely. right." Yeah, 
That comes into it as well. And I've had a few clients where they actually were in that exact same situation. And the problem that you find is that when you're dealing with homeowners, that is somebody who's going to treat the property as their personal residence, your risk does, I think, go up a little bit than if you're dealing with people who are going to turn around and they're treating it as an investment property, like Alex alluded to earlier, where you have your buyer's list and you know those people are either going to churn them or they're going to turn them into rentals. When you, The age of the person, okay, that's an issue as well. When you're dealing with older people, your liability exposure is going to be much greater than dealing with somebody that's younger because uh-huh. they could say that you're preying upon the elderly and you're making misrepresentations because they don't understand what it is you're telling them. So I often tell people that in, for a wholesaler, I think that it's a good idea to have the other side seek their own independent legal counsel. I say that protects you. So if anything goes south in this deal, they have their own attorney, sue their own attorney because their attorney failed to adequately disclose them. And I know from a, uh, from a d- business standpoint, most attorneys are like the Morton Salt man. They come around, they try to qu- kill more deals than they try to help, to help put together for their clients. But well, how do you side, how do you do that? How do you make sure the other party has an attorney? Or do you well, – yeah, how, how do you do that? Well, what you do in that situation is that you would have them sign an acknowledgement that they were advised to seek independent legal counsel, and either they, they either waived it or they did. You'd say, I understand that he informed me that I need to run this by my own attorney, and I hereby waive the right to do that, and I, or acknowledge the fact that they didn't do it. So, so then, if they did come back against you and they bring an attorney, you can say, I told the guy to go out and seek his own attorney. In fact, I gave him a few extra days to do it, and here it is right here in my agreement with him. And he said he didn't care, and he understood what he was getting into, and he declined to do that. That's a good – you know, I've done that before on some of my lease option deals, mm-hmm. um, but I've not thought about doing that on my wholesale deals. Um, in other words, maybe a good piece of advice, Clint, would be in your contract, give the – Give the buyer a few days, extra days, to back out of the contract so they can have an attorney review it. Exactly. I like Do you that. use land trust at all? No. Okay, good. Because that's a problem where uh, I've seen with wholesalers who will try to tie it up, you know, especially with HUD properties, uh-huh. uh, with a land trust. And then they'll want to flip that land trust to the end buyer. And in those situations, I really inadamant about them having an attorney on the other side review that because I don't feel that the person who is getting entering into that deal has the requisite knowledge to understand the trust, how it works. And I think there's a lot of liability. In fact, I've seen it wherever it's blown up in the face of my wholesaling clients because they didn't do that. Well, there's so many guys out there who say that you have to do everything in a land trust. Um, are you, you're not, you're not uh, part of that fold? Well, 2000 to 2007, I wasn't part of that fold. I would tell people, you know, you can use it if you, it's up to you whether or not you want to use a trust. Now, actually, I use land trust for majority of my clients, uh, 90% of the time, more so from the investor standpoint. If you're going to buy and hold residential real estate, I'll use a land trust. And there's, I mean, there's a number of reasons why. Uh, Do you want me to go into them? Yeah, let's do that later, though, because I want to, okay, I want to, because land trusts are important. Um, but just so I'm clear, you're, you're not suggesting putting a property in a land trust to wholesale it unless you're for sure that there's attorneys involved on both sides. Correct. Okay. But I want to focus on the um, liability protection for wholesalers. Can you give us some advice and, and tips on how we can protect ourselves better when we're wholesaling properties? 
Okay. So if you're going to wholesale properties, the first thing I'd recommend you do is set up an entity and elect S-corporation tax treatment for it. So you can minimize your taxes on the flipping of these property or these wholesaling of these properties. That's the first thing I would do. Then I would contract through that entity with all your end buyers. So whenever you're tying up a property, it's in the name of the corporation, not as you individually. So you would have business cards printed out. So whenever you're dealing with someone, you're dealing on behalf of the corporation. So it'd be Clint Coons is president of Real Time Profits Inc., something like that. Now, is that going to protect you? It depends on how much protection that's going to provide you. You can always pierce through a corporation if they allege that you engage in any type of fraudulent behavior. The corporation's never going to protect you. But if they're looking to bring a statutory claim or some type of claim against you uh, for a contract violation, well, then you yourself won't have any personal liability if that's within the ordinary course of your business when you enter into this contract. They would just sue the corporation and not you individually. The benefit for that is that let's assume that they find a judge who buys the defendant or the plaintiff's case and they award him $100,000 in damages. Well, where does that judgment attach? If it's against the corporation, it's going to attach to your business and not to you individually. So you can essentially close down that business and wipe out that judgment by bankrupting out your corporation and you're free to start a new one and go back into business the very next day. Okay, but they can. you just said they can pierce the corporate veil protection if there's fraud, right? Don't they always right. claim fraud when they're going after you anyway? Sure, they're always going to claim fraud when they're going after you, but the, the, the fraud claim is a much higher standard than negligence. Okay. 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 So that's a tougher claim for them. They're, they're always going to throw it in. They throw everything at you. Consumer Protection Act violation, they're always going to allege that as well because that's going to typically bring them trouble damages. So they're going to throw everything they can think of into it, but it's your attorney's job to get those certain claims dismissed, to get you removed from the case as a defendant and get the judge to buy off on the fact that it was just the corporation that they should be dealing with and not the individual. Now, if a, if you do get a judgment against your corporation, though, doesn't that still – does it still attach to you in public records or is that – how can you not be personally liable if you are found guilty if you do a deal in an entity? Does that make sense? Yeah, so if it attaches to the business, then the business is itself another person. You have to think of it as an individual separate and apart from you. So this corporation, this artificial person is liable for it. Just as if I sued you individually and I got a judgment against you, you could bank, go bankrupt and make that judgment go away. You can do the same thing with your business. You could bankrupt it out and then that judgment would be lost to the plaintiff at that point in time. Okay. But it won't protect you if you do something stupid and you, you commit willful fraud. Is that correct? Correct. It will never protect you in that case. Now, that's why you also need to implement other structures to protect your assets. So if your corporation is pierced, all of your other investment assets are moved beyond the reach of your personal creditor. And that's why we'll typically utilize limited liability companies to hold your cash that you're using for your investing, to hold your rental real estate. They'll, you'll hold those in LLCs so that the creditor, they can get a judgment against you, 
but they can't attach that judgment to your real estate or to your bank account. I mean, the mistake that I see a lot with real estate investors, they have their cash in their own name. And they're, they're, the money that they're putting into their deals, they keep it in this investment account, it's in their own name. And eventually, if something does happen and a judgment is entered against them, the first thing the attorney's going to do is go down and file a writ of garnishment on that account, and your account's going to be frozen. I just spoke to a, a client of mine two weeks ago, exact same situation. But this was from a bank. A bank got a, a, obtained a deficiency judgment against him on a property he had purchased down in Florida that he had to let go. And I had structured him with a limited liability company for his investment account. I said, put your investment account in this LLC. Well, he had a local attorney down in Florida that he was working with, uh, with regards to the bank and trying to negotiate out a settlement on the property. His attorney told him, you don't want to have those assets in a Nevada LLC because this happened to be a Nevada entity for, for its protection purposes. He said, that's just going to make you appear guilty, like you're trying to hide something. So for purposes of f good faith negotiation with the bank, you need to put that money back into your personal name. And he followed that attorney's advice. And the very next, well, within a week, that account was frozen and he lost all his cash. Wow. Yeah, sad. So if you're, if you can create a, well, run through an example then. Let's say you are, you're, you're wholesaling properties in the, in the name of XYZ LLC. Are you saying you should have a business, your cash in a business account for XYZ LLC, or should it be in another separate entity? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So let's assume you came to me and said, Clint, here's what I have. I have $200,000 I use for my investing, and I'm a wholesaler. How should you structure me? Well, what I would typically do is set up an entity with S-corporation tax treatment for your wholesaling. And then I would take your cash and put in a separate entity, a limited liability company for charging order protection. So that cash is protected. And so whenever you need your cash, it would depend on how you're structuring your deal, how we would use that cash. For, I'll give you an example of what I've done in the past. So I have a corporation set up for my rehab. So I would I buy properties in Las Vegas, I rehab them, and then I flip them. Now, the cash in order to put that deal together would come from my LLC. So I would loan the money. So let's say I loan my corporation $70,000 to buy and rehab the property. When I loan the corporation the money, it buys the property for cash. My LLC takes back a first deed of trust on the property. So if anything happens during the rehab process, if anybody decides to bring a claim against my corporation from a prior deal that I've done, I've secured all the equity in that property up to what that is what I've put into it with that first deed of trust because it was a loan. It was a loan from an LLC, a different entity. Now, when the property sells, the cash from what I the money I lent to the LLC, escrow pays the LLC back the $70,000 plus interest and the remaining profits stay inside of my corporation for my next deal. For me, that covers my bases by doing it that way. If something were to happen and they were to pierce the corporation, come after me personally, the cash, the, the deed of trust, all that's held by an LLC, so I don't own it. They can't take it from me. It also gives me flexibility if the deal doesn't work out the way I'd anticipated. Like I've been in situations where I thought I could flip it. It's not selling. It's been on the market for 90 days. I decide I'm just going to turn it into a rental. 
I can easily pull that property out of my corporation by exchanging the deed of trust in exchange for the real estate and I'm able to remove it from my corporation without any adverse tax consequences. So that's how I structure my deals. I always keep my cash set aside separate and apart and whenever I need it, I will loan it out to the entity that needs the cash and then I secure that with a deed of trust or a mortgage. Interesting. And then do you ever buy properties in a self-directed IRA? Do you give do you that, that's a whole nother can of worms I imagine, but Sure. Okay. So let's assume that you want to engage in a self-directed IRA. I have clients that do that. A more proponent of self-directed pension plans just from the standpoint of control. But however you want to put your deals together, if you're using a, a retirement account, that's fine. But what I find is that most, or not most people, that some people inadvertently violate the rules. That is, they engage in a prohibited transaction. Right. So if you see a piece of property you wanna buy in your IRA, as long as you have sufficient cash to do it, fine, go ahead and buy it. But do not go out to that property and lift a hammer. You can manage the construction, the rehab work, but you yourself cannot do it. The other problem that I see with IRAs that no one talks about, even the IRA custodians will not bring this up to real estate investors, is that if you're buying property to hold long term, that's an investment, that's permissible. But if you're buying property to flip and you're rehabbing and then selling properties out of your IRA, I think you're running up against what's considered what they call UBIT, unrelated business taxable income, that you're running a business out of your IRA. You're running an active real estate business. That is, you're buying and selling property. And mm -hmm. per the code, that's taxable to you. So there's problems there, I think, with real estate investors and IRAs. And I counsel people a lot that, you know, the IRS has become extremely active right now with real estate investors. Actually, it's been going on now for two years. I belong to a list called Tax Notes Today. And it, there isn't a week that goes by that another case hits this, this listserv where a real estate investor was audited by the, the Internal Revenue Service and he lost. And the IRS has just gone after real estate investors on issues that 10 years ago they would have never bothered with. But they're looking at ways to collect revenue. And for most real estate investors, they're so busy moving on to their next deal that they're not following up, dotting the I's, crossing the T's like they should be, keeping a log of their activities, and it's coming back to bite them. Well, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about Nevada corporations. Uh, that's the cure-all for all your problems. You just create a Nevada corporation and then do all of your IRA stuff in that and you'll be fine. Maybe I'm, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but can you talk a little bit about that? Does, does creating Nevada corporations solve all your problems and is that what you recommend to people? Actually, creating Nevada corporations create more problems for people most of the time okay. than they actually solve. Don't get me wrong. I set up a lot of Nevada entities. I mean, we have an office down in Las Vegas, but it has to be set up for the right reasons. For real estate investors, a Nevada entity for active real estate business really doesn't make much sense. Here's this typical sales pitch you're going to get when you're considering a Nevada entity. Incorporate your business in tax-free Nevada. Don't pay any tax. Run your business in Minnesota out of Nevada. You'll benefit from their asset protection laws or anonymity. Well, the problem with that line of thought is that that assumes that you're never going to conduct business in Minnesota, that all your business activities outside the state. 
Once you go into a certain state and you have regular and continuous contacts, you need to register that company in that state to conduct business. So here's your Nevada corporation where you're going to be spending an additional $800 a year just to maintain it in Nevada. It comes with certain benefits. There's no doubt about it with the anonymity. That is, you know, we have probably 14,000 entities we've created where our client's information is not listed with the Secretary of State because Nevada allows you to use a nominee. So my law firm's partner, A.T. Mathis, he's on these entities as a nominee, and then he resigns and our clients take over. So they want that privacy. But as soon as I conduct business in another state, that privacy disappears because you have to register your business there. If you don't register your business there and you fly under the radar, there's no doubt about it, you'll be fine until you're involved in a lawsuit. Let's assume that somebody defaults on a deal and you want to bring a, a, a case against them. So you go down, you file your claim, you start the lawsuit, they're, they're going to have an affirmative defense. They're going to bounce you out of court because you were not licensed or you were not registered to do business there. You lack standing. You can't bring the case in that state. And then that's just going to open up a whole other can of worms because if I was on the other side, I'd report you to the state and say oh. that you've been, not been paying any tax on the, uh, on the deals that have been taking place there. And so now you're going to be fighting with the state. So Nevada, it does offer certain benefits for certain individuals. For active real estate investors who are buying and selling properties in their home jurisdiction, I wouldn't use Nevada Corporation. I just tell them, let's just set up a corporation in the state where you're conducting your business. Keep Nevada aside for holding purposes where, for instance, if you're going to hold the cash, that's a good example where you'd use a Nevada LLC because they offer great charging order protections. That is, if I sue you, I can't take your interest from you. I can't force you to distribute out money to me. If you're going to have multiple LLCs, let's say your husband and wife and you've purchased a lot of property in various states and all these LLCs are treated as partnerships because your CPA set them up that way. So he has multiple returns each year he gets to file. So it's just ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching every time you're doing another, buying another piece of property. Well, in that situation, I'll take all those LLCs and I'll put them into a Nevada LLC that you and your wife will own. And then in that manner now, we convert all of those multiple LLCs were treated as partnerships to single member entities. So they no longer have to file federal returns. So that's going to save you money on an annual basis. And then you have this extra protection. That is, if somebody sued either one of you, they're not going to be able to get through that Nevada LLC to get to your multi-state LLCs to get to your properties because Nevada law prohibits that from, from happening. And so there's uses in that manner. But Generally, like you said, if you're going to buy and sell property, you're not going to go to Nevada. It's not going to make sense. But you did bring up an IRA, you know, partnering with an IRA, and I didn't touch on that. Let's assume that you wanted to buy real estate in Florida and you have an IRA. Then I would suggest you set up a Florida limited liability company to purchase that real estate and hold it in that manner. Now, again, for asset protection purposes, so if something happens with the uh, real estate itself, that all of your remaining cash in that IRA is not subject to attachment. I mean, one of the things I also look at with real estate investors who are dead set on on trading or investing in their IRA, I'll tell them, hey, separate them out. Have multiple IRAs and do different deals in different IRAs. So if one does go bad, all your cash is not at risk. That's something that most people don't realize that IRAs are separate trust agreements. If you have three or four self-directed IRAs created, which is simple, you just roll part of the funds out into a separate IRA, you can buy a property in that one. IRA number one goes down, IRA two, three, and four are protected. They have no relation to IRA number one. So you can gain protection by having multiple IRAs. 
Okay. And you can partner. You can partner with your own IRA too if you set it up the right way. Let, let's go back to wholesaling. Now, re, and we understand a little bit about the entities, but what are some other things that a wholesaler can do to protect themselves from liability besides the entity part of it? Like we mentioned, we mentioned giving the acknowledgement that they should seek, making them acknowledge that they need to seek legal counsel give them a few extra days to even cancel the contract if they have to, to give them time to get legal protection or legal counsel. What are some other things you'd recommend to protect a wholesaler when they're flipping properties, quick flipping properties like this? Have their agreement that they're used and reviewed by an attorney. That's the number one thing they should do. Okay. Make sure that they, that the agreement they're using doesn't violate any state law. To begin with, uh, a lot of the agreements I see wholesalers using are form agreements that they pulled off the internet, or they've gone to some class on wholesaling and they receive this form packet at the class, and they think that that one contract will work in all 50 states, and it really won't. A lot of times, I'll see in wholesale agreements, you know, provisions where there are no provisions for attorney's fees. Let's assume that the other side does default on the deal, and you want to bring in action. What what type of what do you want out of that? Do you want specific performance? Do you want to get just damages? Do you want attorney's fees? Make sure that you have protections in your agreement, so that if you need to enforce it, that you're going to get out of it what your expectation is going into it. And all that's going to come from having an attorney review it. So I think that's really important. Okay, um, from a wholesaler standpoint. Do you recommend a, a local attorney in that state or can a national attorney Absolutely. like a company like you do, like yours, no. do that? No, we can't. In fact, I often I tell my clients you need to get that local attorney specifically to assist with those types of deals. Now, here's the problem most people face. How do I find an attorney who understands wholesaling? Well, it's like everything. I mean, a lot of things in life, if you're looking for somebody to, to hire – Think of it that way. If you're an employer and you want to hire somebody specifically for web development, what do you do? Do you just pull the first person out of the phone book you find that says, uh, I engage in web development? Or do you call them up and interview them and, and take some time to find the right fit for you? That's what people need to do. Uh -huh. And so all attorneys, they're not the same. You have to find the guy that understands your particular line of business. So I would reach out to the community to begin with. Find people who are engaged in similar activities that you're engaged with and ask them if they know of an attorney in your area who understands it, who they're using. And that's who I would go to. Okay. Good advice. I give that advice all the time, actually, too. I mean, just go to your local RIA group. Usually there's attorneys there. Now, here's something that I've seen some people do, and maybe you can give me your opinion on this, Clint. They will just use the standard contracts that realtors use, even though they aren't licensed. They'll just use the standard contracts that le uh, the realtors use in their area because those are prepared by attorneys that were familiar with local state law. Is that something that you is that, is, is that okay to do that? Well, the problem with using those agreements many times is if you look down in the footer. They typically have the fact that it's a realtor's agreement down on the bottom. Right. They're copyrighted. Yeah. So, well, first off, the copyright thing. In the practice of the law, one of the things they teach you in law school right away is there's no such thing as plagiarism anymore if you're an attorney. And no such thing as stealing, I think, as well. But that's a different subject. So <laughs> the thing is, is that uh, 
I would change that. I would take the language. There's definitely good language in those agreements. Don't get me wrong. But I would have it custom drafted. I would strip anything that refers to that out of the agreement to begin with. And mm-hmm. then I would custom tailor that agreement so that it matches specifically what it is that you're doing. And that's why you got to work with a local guy. I don't know of a single, I would never give one of those agreements to my clients here in Washington and and recommend they use it. We would draft one specifically for their use. Now, what I've done before is I've taken, instead of asking an attorney to give me a contract, I have prepared my own contracts and, and gone to my attorney and asked them to review this. And I've found that you can save yourself a little money by doing that. Um, Absolutely. And then you can also add in the things because, you know, I don't want to bash gurus because a lot of the contracts that you can get from courses and gurus are actually really good. You may need to, you know, not you not may, you, you, you need to have an attorney review them, but that may be a good place to start. Would you agree? A good place to start is with those contracts and then take a look at the local realtors contracts and then add in there put something together to give it to an attorney to review. Would you recommend that? Absolutely. Does that make sense? Okay. It does make sense. And and I mean, just as an attorney, if I'm faced with a situation that I've not handled before, that's exactly what I do. I will go out and I will find agreements that have been prepared by other individuals and I will then put those agreements together, take the best pieces out of them that I think are important to whatever it is that I'm putting together and then I'll come up with a new agreement from multiple sources. Okay. Now, can we can we talk real quickly because we're getting close to an hour and I need to end this here. A lot of people listening to this, and as well as myself, but a lot of other people will do coaching and consulting with new investors. Can you talk a little bit about uh, ideas or suggestions you have for entity protection or you know asset protection when it comes to consulting or doing coaching? Um, and this could even tie into bird dogs. Sometimes what we'll do is we'll we'll I do this a lot actually is I'll I'll train bird dogs to bring me deals, to bring me leads, and I'll partner with them on the deals. Do you have any advice and and, and tips on that? Sure. When um, whenever you're dealing with a, if you're going to partner with somebody on a deal, you want to make sure that you have an agreement put together that reflects the intention of both parties. Last week four individuals, they're looking at buying this self-storage facility in Florida. They came to me about possibly drafting an operating agreement. And I told them what my fee was to put it together. And the first response I got back from one of the guys, he's like, why am I going to pay you that when I can go on SunBiz and LegalZoom and put this thing together for $600? Mm -hmm. And I said, because when this deal blows up, you don't know where you're going to stand using those types of agreements. Because in my experience... 85% of partnerships fail and they fail because there's violated expectations by one of the parties that, that even though you talk about things, people don't necessarily hear everything that you're saying. They're listening to you, but they're hearing what they're thinking and they're interpreting your words, what's most favorable to them. So what you need is an agreement that spells everything out. I'll give you an example of this. Let's say you got a bird dog you want to partner with. I go into this deal with you. I'm under the assumption that you and I are going to be doing multiple deals together. So we put together this, assume it's a joint venture of some sort. I make this assumption. 
You go out and you find another deal after we put our deal together and you partner with somebody else. I might sue you and say, wait a minute, you told me you're going to be working with me. You need to bring those deals to me before you bring them to somebody else because now we're partners hmm. in real estate. So a common clause I'll, find, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll draft into my LLC operating agreements for this is that there's no fiduciary obligations by any of the members to bring a deal to this joint venture, that they're free to engage in independent activities that are related and that this is just a one-time deal. Uh, between these two parties. And so there's ways that you want to make sure that you're protecting yourself. So if something does happen in the future, you know, and you decide to, let's say, separate, when's the property going to be sold? What's the expectation of profit? What's the expectation of distributions from that? Who's going to decide when they're being made? What, who's going to give out or distribute out the money to cover taxes? What's going to happen when you need to replace a roof? Who's going to pony up the money? What happens if somebody doesn't have the money to pony up? Then what occurs in that situation? So these are things that you know, on small deals, many times people look at the size of the deal. It's a, a $30,000 property and they think to themselves, well, do I really need to deal with this? Well, the, the fact of the matter is, is that it may be a $30,000 deal, but it could run you at least that in attorney's fees if you ended up having to litigate it. And I've found that when I've told my clients that they need to do this and they don't follow my advice and it blows up, it's never a good situation. There's always somebody that walks away spending a heck of a lot more money than they anticipated. So you put an agreement together and this is where I'm going with this. You put one agreement together, you spend the money, you get it done right, and then you reuse that operating agreement for every single deal. As long as the terms are the same, you don't need to change anything. Okay. Well, Alex, do you have any other questions? We need to end this call here. Uh, well, it's not. It doesn't give you the warm and fuzzies to talk about this kind of stuff, but uh, <laughs> it's it's definitely necessary because stuff does hit the fan every now and then, and yeah. the more business you do, the more stuff is likely to uh, go wrong. It's just it's just the way it is. So you know, it's 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 always good to get ideas of of what you can do to link yourself with the right people to. Uh, to uh, protect yourself because making money is one thing. <laughs> That's, I, I guess, for more or less the easy thing. The, the, the other thing is you got to protect it and hold on to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Clint, do you have anything you want to, to, to end this call with? Any parting advice? You know, I would just say that what individuals should do that's considering getting involved in real estate, they need to have a good team around them. They need to have an attorney that understands what it is they're doing, and they have to have a tax component, a CPA, that also understands real estate investing. So they make sure that they're not only protecting themselves from potential creditors and they're structuring their deals properly. So that would also require an attorney who understands contract law because they're typically different than asset protection attorneys. So you have this team that ensures that going forwards, you're not going to be overpaying in taxes or creating unnecessary liability for yourself. And you know when it comes to lawsuits, there's hopefully you'll never be sued but you know i'll leave you this with this parting story i had a client here in gig harbor that i put together she was 78 years old when i structured her and i put her cash into an llc and we did some things with her personal residence to make the equity disappear and she got sued on her 82nd birthday or maybe it was 86 i forget what it was but sued for two million dollars for something that happened over 30 years ago her husband owned this piece of property where he repaired boats and just washed all the chemicals down in the harbor, which you could do back then. 
But there's no statute of limitations on those types of claims. And the current property owner sued her for $2 million as a shakedown lawsuit. And she was going to lose. There's no doubt about it. But once we disclosed to the other side how she was protected and that there wasn't anything for them to collect, they agreed to settle for less than six figures. And that settlement offer came back within 72 hours of us making this disclosure. But the point of it is not so much that we saved her so much money, which, you know, that's important in of itself. But her son called me up, who I'd never met before, about three months after this was all over. And he told me, he said, Clint, when you first structured my mother, he goes, I figured that you were just one of those attorneys that was preying upon the elderly. And I thought this was all a bunch of junk, that she didn't need it. What's the likelihood of somebody in their 80s that's going to be sued yeah. at that point in time? And he said, you know, I decried what you were doing. I didn't think it was in my mom's best interest, but I'm so glad she found you. And I just want to apologize for thinking that and saying things about you to my friends in that matter because you saved us. Huh. And that just exemplifies asset protection in my mind. I mean, you know, when you have those plans in place, they protect you, and hopefully you'll never need to call upon them. But if you do, they're there. So if you want to get a hold of me, can I yeah, give out my Yeah, for sure. How do you yeah. get a hold of you, Clint? Definitely. You can go to our website. We have alglaw.com, alglaw.com, and you can sign up by, uh, for our newsletter. Or if you just Google my name, Clint Coons, I write a WordPress blog for real estate investors. I try to post every other week, um, which covers a lot of uh, these different topics we've been discussing. You can, you can check it out there, or you can check out my book on Amazon, uh, Asset Protection for Real Estate Investors as well. Nice. Be happy to so, work with people. Yeah. I, I'll put the links to that. I see one of your... Um your blogs here, clintcoons.wordpress.com. You also have clintcoons.com, don't you? I do, but I don't update that one. Uh, it's the I basically did that because somebody stole my URL, oh. and I say once once I got it back uh, when it came up for renewal. But go to the clintcoons.wordpress.com. That's the one that I up I just wrote a great article on Dodd-Frank and the implications for people who are seller financing, what they need to know going into next year. As of January 10th, the rules are going to change on everybody. So, yeah, you should check that out. And then I'm looking here in Amazon, Clint Coons, and your book's right at the top, Asset Protection for Real Estate Investors. Very cool. You can buy it in paperback. And uh, you also have in, oh, no Kindle yet. No, I haven't. Well, I'm working on the second one to that book right now, and I'm about three months out. I'm going to put that in Kindle format, but I don't have this one in it. Cool. Good for you. Well, thank you, Clint, for your time. Guys, just Google Clint Coons or Google Anderson Business Advisors, and uh, you'll find Clint there and alglaw.com. We sure appreciate the time that you spent with us, no, Clint. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Glad to share the information. Awesome, guys. Yeah, also, great. yeah, uh, guys, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com to get the show notes, uh, to get our fast cash survival kit. And don't we need to give a disclaimer since we have an attorney? Don't we need to give some kind of a disclaimer, Clint, that we're not here to give legal advice, right? That's exactly right. We're not on this call to give any legal advice, and you can't rely upon anything we said, right? Right, and we don't play <laughs> attorneys on TV either. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so this is we results I, may vary. Results may vary. You'll you'll probably this lose not money. Typical results yeah. not typical, and you probably will lose money in real estate, and you will get sued. And don't blame us. I'm just, I'm just kidding, sorta. Yeah. All right. Hey, thanks again. <laughs> okay. I better shut up. 
<laughs> That's good. All right. See you guys. Take care. Thanks.